Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back. Show number 99 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a partner at Land Bank Advisors and a real estate investor. I'm joined here by not only my partner in the podcasting, but also a partner at Land Bank and real estate genius himself, Daniel Foch. Dan, how's it going, man? I'm good. I am uh, I'm curious about what's happening in the market. This most recent rate hike seemed to have taken a lot of the uh, optimism out of the most recent bull run of a spring market that we saw. And uh, I think that that's sort of what we're going to be talking about today anyway, isn't it? A hundred percent, man. We are talking about interest rates. We're actually, Dan, would you like to go on a little trip with me down memory lane all the way back to the 30s, maybe? Maybe we'll start in the 30s and the 50s and we'll look at the history of interest rates, like the literal highs and lows. We're also going to chat about something that we haven't really talked about in detail yet, which is real, negative and neutral rates. Now, at this point, you may or may not be sick about hearing about interest rates. And trust me, I get that. We get that. Uh, but this episode is not meant to scare you. It's not meant to be all doom and gloom. Its purpose is to actually educate you and empower you so that you can make better decisions in this uncharted territory or possibly chartered territory that we find ourselves in. Honestly, like I, f I feel like if people are sick of hearing of interest rates and that's <laughs> their problem, like screw that. The, the reason we care so much about rates is just to contextualize this, a $1 million mortgage over a 30-year amortization at 5.5% interest pays over $1 million in interest. On that mortgage, in just your first five-year term, you'd pay $262,000 in interest over a five-year term and just $76,000 in principal. Wow. So 77% of your total cost in the first five years of owning a property is interest. So if I, if I need to explain why interest rates are important here and an important part of the conversation, and you know, a lot of people want to think about timing the market, it's just as worthwhile to think about the timing of, of interest rates, the execution of interest rates. And that's just difficult too. You need to be interested in interest rates. Good pun. Are you, have you moved on to puns now from original <laughs> quotes? A little blend of both here. Try to keep it uh, relevant for everybody. Yeah. And if you want a little bit of a primer or a prequel to this episode, uh, go back and check out episode two, how Canadian real estate performs in a rising rate environment. We cover the entire history of interest rates in Canada, how they affected home prices, the economy, consumer sentiment, and more. Yeah, and we're going to be doing something similar in this episode. That was episode two. This is episode 99. We've come a long way. It's been almost a full year of this podcast, and we've got a pretty sweet episode lined up for our 100th episode. Um, but it all kind of started after we saw this article uh, about, you guessed it, interest rates. Yeah, and I think that you know, since the Bank of Canada um, governor speech in BC, there there was enough coverage of this, and this is something we've been talking about for a long time here: the idea of interest rates being higher for longer. But 
Better Dwelling covered it relatively well with the headline, the era of no, uh, sorry, the era of low rates. I almost said no rates, although there was a period <laughs> of time. There was a period of time where it was almost like we'll no rates. We'll get there. We'll get the there. The era of low rates is over. Canadians can barely remember the last time rates were this high, but get used to it. Bank of Canada Deputy Governor Paul Boudry speaking. A day after the rate hike warned the era of low interest rates is over. And we've been talking about this for a while. We've been talking about the potential for a inflationary decade and inflation being tough to get down, um, especially with a lot of geopolitical changes, onshoring, et cetera. Yeah, these are good things for the local economy, but good things for the local economy are inflationary. That's what we're dealing with right now. So they justified this forecast with a slate of reasons that didn't quite make sense and will reverse based on a, a gut feeling is what they say in the article. But I, I think it's funny, you know, from my perspective, for anybody who was calling for rate cuts, based on the Bank of Canada's track record so far, when they come out with these pressers and say that things are going to be a certain way for a long period of time, maybe they're actually finally right now that the Bank <laughs> of Canada is saying that rates are going to be high for the foreseeable future. That's the same. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So uh, so let's look into that, Dan. And, and you know, you said, you know, th- how long has it been since Canadians, they can't remember the last time rates were this high. So why can't we remember and when was the last time that rates were this high or higher? And how high did they get? Yeah, so why don't we why don't we pause this this article reading and, and take that trip down memory lane that you were talking oh, about? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. Perfect. Okay, well, let's look at this chart, and this is from wawa.ca, amazing website. Let's look at this chart here that takes the Bank of Canada's overnight rate as well as the prime rate all the way back to 1935 and tracks it to present day in 2023. Now, before we do this, let's get a quick refresher of what the overnight rate and prime rate are, Dan. So the bank carries out monetary policy by influencing short-term interest rates. It does this by adjusting the target for overnight rate on eight fixed dates each year. The overnight rate is basically the ability for the banks to lend in o- overnight when the banks are closed to settle differences and balances. Um, the overnight lending rate in Canada is currently 4.75, up just a little bit from 0.25. Uh, <laughs> you noticed that? In, yeah. You didn't yeah, find I did. out, I caught that one. Find yeah, out so couple, uh, through your mail? <laughs> couple of, no, I just, I only go on Instagram and I'm fortunate to follow uh, just at least one realtor. Right. So I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, I've heard I've heard about the the rate hikes. Um the rate is also referred to as the Bank of Canada's policy interest rate, key interest rate or target rate, and it's the benchmark cost of borrowing set by the central bank. And in turn, there is what's known as the prime rate, also known as the prime lending rate, and it is the annual interest rate that the Canadian major banks and other financial institutions used to set their interest rates for variable loans, lines of credit, and obviously variable interest rate mortgages. Man, it is funny um, on the topic of like TikTok and Instagram and realtors talking about rate hikes and stuff. I, I feel bad for a lot of agents who like there's I guess there's a lot of people who are really sensitive if you call if you say the Bank of Canada changes the prime rate and people just getting ripped apart on uh, on Instagram and TikTok when they say that the Bank of Canada changed the prime rate. So 
the prime rate is the is the best rate at which banks can lend. Each bank sets their own prime. So like TD says their prime, and they, they basically just I, I, it is like an honor system. It seems like they're kind of like, oh, this is the cheapest we can lend you money at. So <laughs> anyway, it, it's loosely tied to the overnight rate, but um, it's always a couple points. It's always a couple points. I'd say like minimum two to to three higher than uh, than the overnight rate. Yeah. Okay. Let's hop in the DeLorean here. Yeah, love it. Okay, let's go back. 50 years. We'll start this journey off in 1970. The popular band, The Beatles, announced they had been disbanded. Horrible news. NASA's Apollo 13 moon mission successfully returned to Earth. That was a big deal. And the first jumbo jet, Boeing 747, made its debut commercial flight from New York to London. And also, back in August of 1970, the Bank of Canada's overnight rate was 6.75 and Prime was 8.17%. Yeah, and house prices were probably like $3. Oh, we'll get there. Don't don't you worry. So fast forward a decade to 1980. The popular songs were Blondie's Call Me and Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall was, Part 2. Those are good songs. Tune. Yeah, cla- instant classics. <laughs> CNN uh, Cable News Network began broadcasting on June 1st, and uh, 3M began sales of its latest product, the good old-fashioned post-it note. Groundbreaking. For sure. And in January of 1980, the Bank of Canada's overnight rate hit 13.75%, and Prime was 15%. Wow. Then, in July of 1981, when the bank's overnight rate was 19.64%, and Prime was 21%. Six years later in 1987, it had dropped to an overnight rate of 7.34 and Prime of 9.25. Yeah, and then we went through a couple of uh, little hurdles there. 89, we had some a uh, s- little bit of a run-up in the old price environment. Things got a little crazy. So what happened moving into the 90s? Well, you remember the 90s, Dan. Great decade. Remember Ryan Gosling, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake? Well, they were all famous, but as part of the Mickey Mouse Club. I feel like I didn't even know Ryan Gosling was a thing back then. We just knew um, he was from Cornwall, and that's all that really matters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, the, the Soviet Union. That's a funny video on YouTube, by the way. Ryan Gosling talking about Cornwall, Ontario. Anyway, the Soviet Union had just fallen. Tamagotchis. Beanie Babies and Furbies were all the coolest toys. And we saw the rise of Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Did Google actually start in the 90s? No, but it started, little, it started really like gaining traction back then, the late 90s. Along with uh, a little thing called the web, the World Wide Web, and uh, also known as the internet. Hmm. Have you ever heard of that? No. Yeah, no. I know. Look it up, maybe? check it out. Where should I look it There's up? There's a funny, isn't a Family Guy episode where they're talking about the internet, but it's like the netting yeah, in, the, the, in like the their bathing, bathing suits? Yeah. <laughs> Have you tried the internet? In January of 1990, the Bank of Canada's overnight rate was 12.04%, and Prime was 13.5%. By 1994, it hit a new low. The Bank of Canada was 36 Three and Prime was five point five. A year later, in nineteen ninety five, it was up again to seven point nine two percent overnight. So there is a degree of volatility in rates, especially when we're fighting recessions. Because I think there was a bit of a recession going on around those times. 
Prime was at 9.75. Then from 95, it started to decline all the way to June of 2004. Made it through the dot-com bubble when the overnight rate hit 2% and Prime was 3.75. Yeah, speaking of the dot-com bubble, remember Y2K, Dan? That, you know, the world was supposed to end. All the computers were going to stop working because they like couldn't figure out the date or something like that, all that good stuff. Yeah, I think they were worried that like when the dates rolled over, like they were all just coded to have like they weren't coded to start with a two, right? So it was like nineteen ninety nine, and then I guess they thought all of everything that ran on computers was just going to implode. That <laughs> uh, I, I, didn't happen, I guess. Apparently, unless that's like when the they, the simulation started. Oh maybe. yeah, maybe that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, two thousands were great. Fast and Furious. Which just has never ended, apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's like a trip down one. memory lane. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Uh, now there's like 15 of those, probably, <laughs> and they just they just take like whatever the new like hot dude is and throw him in there. I didn't think Jason Momoa is in the new one. Isn't of course, he? yeah. The Rock was yeah. in the other. Dwayne Johnson yeah. was in the other one. Yeah. And then January 2000, the overnight rate was 4.75 percent and prime was 6.5 percent hmm. after a, after a bit of a, a crazy thing happening with these computers that never happened sounds pretty familiar now after that rates went on a little run from 2005 to 2007 when the overnight rate was 4.5 and prime had hit 6.25 then 2008. The global financial crisis. Rates fell off a cliff along with the rest of the economy. It was the most serious financial crisis since the Great Depression. I mean, it affected everybody globally, but it was exponentially worse in the States. It seemed to be concentrated there. House prices fell over 30%. Major bank failures were happening. The government had to come in and rescue a lot of big banks and other financial institutions, they let some die as well. Rest in peace to my homie Lehman Brothers. That um, will forever live on on your hats and t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. But instead of explaining the whole thing and what caused it, just go watch The Big Short. Seriously, if you listen to the podcast and you haven't seen that movie, go do yourself a favor. Uh, the book's great too, by the way, if you're into reading as I am. Anyway, um, let's go to 2009. Yeah, let's fast forward to the summer of 2009. Now, if you're old as I am, you remember that summer. The Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow, and Lady Gaga's Poker Face topped the Billboard charts. Dan, those were two Is that of, song that old? Two That's of your crazy. favorite songs, I know. I'm certain. Literally putting this together, I was like, man, I'm starting to feel old with some of these you know, cultural references. Fully, fully old now, for sure. Um, so rates bottomed out that summer of 2009 when, get this, the overnight rate issued by the Bank of Canada was 0.25%. And Prime was a measly 2.25%. Have we been, we'd had overnight rates that low before? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, from the summer until March of 2017, the overnight rate remained at 1% or lower. But January of 2020, they had risen to an overnight of 1.75 and a Prime of 3.95% only to fall back another cliff in March of 2020. Dan, again, you remember, you must remember March of 2020, another pivotal month and year right there. Yeah, I mean, I was I was running the aisles of grocery stores, filling up with like respirators and canned food. No, you were, you were buying all the toilet paper, weren't you? You were one of those guys. Yeah, big toilet paper apocalypse <laughs> guy. I was just stocking up for all my mummy costumes for Halloween. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, that 
that year uh they they dropped to 0.25 and i think we stayed there pretty much for the entire well i guess until a year and a half ago a year and a bit ago when we all know what happened and then prime was less than two and a half at 4.4 or sorry 2.45 percent so um competitive with that last global financial crisis and they didn't start raising until march of last year uh 2022 yeah they went up a quarter point and then put the overnight rate at 50 bips and then prime at 2.75 and then they just kept going up and up and up and up and up (laughs) and here we are uh the overnight lender rate in canada is currently 4.75 and the prime rate is currently 6.95 and that's after a major rate hiking cycle but is this new like have we been here before have we seen that this much volatility and change in the economy this much change in the interest rates well we've kind of touched on it already and the answer is yes but let's take a look back even further and go decade by decade here so i grouped 1935 to 1960 is obviously not one decade but that there wasn't the economy was just very, very different. It was a totally different world back then. So between 1935 and 1960, the overnight rate was between 1.5 and 5.13%. Prime was between 4.5 and 5.75%. Now, we're going to use a, forgive me for everybody that lives outside of Toronto, it was easier to find the data here. So we're going to use Toronto as kind of our benchmark for home prices in these examples. Now, in the 1950s in Toronto, you could buy a home for just over $30,000. Now, adjusted for inflation, this comes out to about $140,000, $150,000 in today's dollars. Now, those same prices, those same houses that you were buying for $30,000, $40,000 back in the 50s are selling today for between $1.5 and $2 million. That's more than 50 times the purchase price. Now, at the time, a 30K purchase was considered on the high end. That's back in the 1950s. Given normal suburban homes in North York, East York, Scarborough, they averaged between fifteen dollars to $17,000 at that time. Bidding wars were unheard of. Paperwork was minimal and property taxes were low. Those were the golden years, baby. Do you have the, I think the long-term average of interest rates is like two point something percent as well. Uh, it's like a high two percent, I believe. Yeah. Long-term average 2.63%. It looks like for the, wow. for the Canada target overnight rate. I wonder how lot, what that average, I guess it's probably since its inception. I'll find out. I'll, I'll dig on this a little bit. Um, now from the sixties to present day. So sort of like the second half of the century, um, let's look at how rates fluctuated sort of on a decade by decade basis. So from 60s and 70s, the rate, the overnight rate was 2.25 to 7.75%. So a lot of volatility, a lot of range there. Prime was as low as 2.42% and as high as 7.96%. By the late 1960s, home prices had risen, but modestly, the average price was 20 to 30,000 or 180,000 in today's dollars adjusted for inflation. Still a discount. Um, the time, this time the, the economy was not as complex as it is today. Credit cards and money supply was much more constrained, not as much technology and breadth to the economy. Throughout the 1960s, homes generally sold for less than $200,000 of today's dollars. Man, take me back. You know, those, everyone posts like those, like 
I went to Greece three years ago. Hashtag take me back. Take me back to the 70s, 60s. Let me buy some real estate. Um, yeah, so that was the 60s. Dan, let's move from, let's move to the 70s, from the 70s to the 80s. So the overnight rate ranged from 4.5% all the way to 13.75%. That's a difference of 9.25% or 925 basis points. Prime was as low as 6%. And as high as 15%, again, a 9% difference seen and realized just within that one decade from 1970 to 1980. So a similar story as the 60s with slightly stronger price growth in average prices were between 30 and 40,000. And by the late 70s, the average price in Toronto had risen to maybe for a higher end home, the 60 to $70,000 range. And then from 80 to 90, the overnight rate actually hit 19.64%. I'm sure if you know one single boomer, you've heard about this. (laughs) And uh, they got as low as 7.34%, which is crazy to think that their lower bound was that high. Um, Prime fluctuated between 9.25% and 21.25%. Despite these jaw-dropping, heart-stopping interest rates, home prices in the 80s Increased by 260% from 76,000 in 1980 to 274,000 in 1989. I think the high rates though happened in like 81, right? There was two. Was, well, we discussed this early in episode the two. Yeah. So yeah. there was like, there was a peak in 81 and then another peak at 89. Now let's look at the 90s from 1990 to 2000. You see, the overnight went as high as 13.65 and as low as as 3%. That's over a 10-point swing. Prime also had hit 14.75 and a low of 4.75. Again, a 10% difference. During this decade, average home prices in Toronto ranged between $200 to $250,000. Again, using Toronto as a benchmark here. So for instance, you know, we know the disparity between prices in Toronto and the rest of the country. So for instance, if you're buying a $250,000 property in Toronto in 1995, you'd likely be able to see prices below $100,000 across Ontario and easily across the rest of the country. Maybe maybe Vancouver being the only other um you know, the only other thing where you're the only other uh, area where you're seeing prices that are matching Toronto. Yeah, I think it also is worth looking at what cap rates were doing during, during that period of time. Like in the 90s, I guess like beginning of the 90s, cap rates were low. That was sort of when valuations had peaked. Kind of like six to, and this is cra- this is especially crazy, office was your lowest cap rate in the wow. 90s. Yeah, now, I mean, what a what a wild world we're in now. But um, It's almost like there's office, cycles so, or something. It's like... Yeah, well, I mean, I think office would have been completely broken that. But, um, but yeah, so you had sort of like six to... I don't know, six to seven percent cap rate range, and then it went all the way up during the '90s to, let's say, like eight to ten percent. Um, industrial being your highest again, which is kind of funny. In the middle of the '90s, there, and then gradually trended down into 2000, and then we'll, I guess, we can chat a little bit about the rate side in 2000 to 2010. Um, overnight rate hit 4.75 percent, all the way down to the historic lows after the global financial crisis of 0.25 percent. Prime started. Uh, strong at 7.5% at the beginning and was all the way down to 2.25% by the end of the decade. So in 2010, obviously as a result of the the global financial crisis, 
cap rates were sort of in gradual progression down from 2000 until 2008. Um, they hit their lowest in, until basically COVID uh, of like five. That was sort of when apartment became most popular. So cap rates kind of in that in the five to six percent range um, before they jumped up. Obviously during the global financial crisis as a result of valuations dropping or prices dropping. Home prices in Toronto during this period ranged all the way from two hundred fifty thousand all the way up to over four hundred thirty thousand by twenty ten. Yeah, and by let's look at twenty ten to twenty twenty. The overnight rate started the decade off at historic lows, only to max out almost ten years later in twenty nineteen at one point seven five while prime fluctuated between 2.25% and 3.95%. Now, this is where things start to get a little wild here. In 2010, the average home price in Toronto was 431000 By 2015, that had risen almost 200000 to 622000 And by 2020, five years later, that same price was $929,000. So again... 2010, 431,000. 2015, 622,000. 2020, $929,000. A little bit of capital appreciation there. Just a tiny um, bit. Yeah. And then um, 2020 to present day, the overnight was 0. 0.25 in 2020 as a result of COVID uh, emergency policy. And then the prime was. Two, I think we mentioned this just below two and a half, so two point four five all the way until twenty twenty two, and then basically we saw the beginning of this aggressive hiking cycle um, that we've seen basically since the overnight went from zero point two five all the way up to four point seven five, and Prime is now reaching almost seven percent. Uh, I think some some banks have their Prime at six point nine five percent, and that's where it is today. So in in 2020 the average price was 929,000, 2021 it was just shy of 1.1 million, 2022 it was just shy of 1.2 million. So you're looking at just about 10% growth. Yeah, um, crazy to look yeah. at the growth from from, you know, 2010 where it was 431 all the way to almost 1.2 million just in a decade there. And let's keep in mind here that CREA, Canadian Real Estate Association, now has the national, again, this, this is just Toronto, so it is skewed, but the national home price average is now $716,000. So <laughs> we can see one thing here. There has been constant growth in real estate home prices over the long term, but there has also been another constant, volatility in rates. So now that we've taken that whole trip down memory lane, looking at all the rates, I found this really cool article, this this document called The Evolution of Housing in Canada that spanned from 1957 to 2014. So about almost 10 years that we don't have data for, but it still provides some really great insights um, from the 50s to you know the mid-2010s, and it's from Stats Canada. So the first piece here is the suburban home of the 1950s. In the 1950s, single-family homes dominated the housing landscape. From 1957 to 1959, they accounted for 60% of new construction in Canada. The introduction of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation our buddies over at CMHC, 
made the 1954 made single family homes more attainable, which then increased demand for new suburban neighborhoods. And then we saw the apartment boom of the 1960s thereafter. So a major shift occurred from 1962 to 1973 with the majority of building permits, 60% of them being issued for multifamily dwellings. This is basically the last time we saw a major contribution to purpose-built rental or apartment stock. Now, most of that's done by the condo market. This shift reflected a large population growth, um, post-war economic boom, um, a lot of open-door immigration policy. This is sort of the forefront of Canada coming out with that immigration-driven economic growth. The started to see increased demand for housing coming from the baby boom generation who were born in the late 40s to early 60s and now forming their own households, as well as two groups of new immigrants, a lot of European immigrants in the 50s, and then a large inflow of immigrants following the introduction of the economic point system in 1967. The affordability of multifamily properties likely made them an attractive alternative to single family dwellings. Then we look at the residential construction in the 1970s. So construction of the new multifamily units fell at a faster rate than single family dwellings from 1974 to 1982, particularly during the recessionary period of the mid 70s. Dan, you just touched on this. The 60s were the last time we really saw a push for purpose built rentals, even though this has just been a glaringly obvious thing that Canada has needed for decades now. Now, in 1974, the number of new multifamily units declined 40%, reaching a low of 91,989 units following a peak of 154,123 units just years earlier in 1973. From 1974 to 1982, single-family and multifamily dwellings accounted for an equal proportion of new dwellings. Then we saw the return of single-family houses just after that. So basically moving into the 80s, um, period from 83 to 2006, we saw a slower population growth and higher construction intention for single-family dwellings. Residential construction decreased during the 81 to 82 recession when mortgage lending rates were at their peak. That's that famous period of time where you saw those 18% rates. However, when single-family dwellings experienced a quicker recovery following the recession, Multifamily unit construction continued to decline. In 1984, there were fewer multifamily units constructed than at any other point in the previous 20-year period. Mortgage lending rates began dropping sharply in the late 1982, which meant that more people were able to afford single-family homes. Now let's talk the recession and the slow recovery of the 1990s. Residential building construction decreased again during the 1990 to 1991 recession, although in contrast to the 1981-1982 recession, construction intentions for both single-family and multifamily dwellings were slower to recover. It took 15 years for both of these types of dwellings to reach levels comparable to their pre-recession peaks of the late 1980s. That's 15 years but to, to get back to those pre-recessionary levels. Yeah, and, and now I think like when we're considering and we're evaluating history but also making consideration towards what's going to happen, 
I, and we've said this a lot in the past, I actually was surprised how much the Bank of Canada deviated from the Fed, but we have to think about the big brother south of the border. Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve have been making it pretty clear that they intend on raising rates. Um, I think, you know, like target rate probabilities for the July 26 FOMC meeting is now 74% in favor of uh, an increase of 25 to 50 basis points. They did just hold. Um, so that could give us a little bit of relief. But I think both central banks want to continue raising rates. And as long as nothing breaks, which it's start, starting to look like stuff's breaking, but nothing's as severely broken yet. Um, but as long as nothing breaks, they probably will. And then we'll follow them, at, or we should be following them at least. Um, but now they're, now I guess they, they've kind of put it on hold and they're talking about a pause a little bit. Yeah. You know, I feel like whoever's got the TV remote and is, you know, pause, play, pause, play, fast forward, stop, you know, again, we'll, we'll see. Um, anyways, let's get back on track here, Dan. We started the show off talking about an article from Better Dwelling. And after the full tour down memory lane, looking at all the interest rates, let's get back to this article from Better Dwelling author, economist, and friend of the show, Stephen Punwasi. And I'm going to read the first section here, real, negative, and neutral interest rates. Understanding the deputy governor's speech requires understanding three terms. The first is the real rate of interest, which is inflation-adjusted rates. It's just subtracting the rate of inflation from the interest rate. For example, if you took out a mortgage with a 2% interest rate, First of all, well done. Congratulations. <laughs> Hope it was fixed. But if you took out that rate of mortgage with a 2% interest rate, while inflation was 5%, you actually would have a negative 3% interest rate. Now that brings us to the next one, negative real interest rates when it falls below 0%. Borrowing money is effectively cheaper than holding cash since inflation erodes that loan. Central banks use negative real rates to drive demand in an attempt to raise inflation. Now, hopefully they don't underestimate inflation when taking this one on. Then the, the third term is the neutral policy rate. This is the rate where inflation and interest are in harmony. And we literally just got into this territory. Like the overnight rate just surpassed the inflation rate for the first time since the rate hiking cycle started. But this neutral policy rate is this unicorn that central banks chase where inflation is at target and interest rates don't have to provide stimulus or become restrictive on borrowing. Everyone has a job, the cost of goods is stable, and the streets are made of rainbows. <laughs> uh, an important uh, side note here, uh, the last one in Canada doesn't have its own neutral policy rate. It uses the U.S. neutral rate estimate, which seems a bit reckless for a sovereign issuer of convertible currency. It might not be clear, but the U.S. is a very different economy with different needs for credit stimulus. The wild and irrational decisions to use the U.S. rate contributes to the overstimulated Canadians with some of the highest levels of debt in the developed world, which you've heard us talk about many times. I mean, it is a very tough economic problem now with with the, you know, Canada going back or, or targeting those US rates. And 
staying in that long-term decreasing rate environment and can Canadians, you know, us got rid of their, they kicked their credit addiction after they kind of hit the rock bottom in 2008. And we, we really just started ramping ours up because we got by unscathed. And now we do have, we have some of the highest household debt in the world. Long-term rates have been declining in advanced economies. So Canada has seen interest rates go down, but until recently, they basically refused to go back up since I think we, as we mentioned, early 2000s. Um, and I mean, if you look at like a long-term trajectory, they've basically been in decline, you know, save for a couple of bumps since that, that peak of the 1980s, right? When boomers were talking about the 18% rates. So you have 40 years basically of declining interest rates. So Deputy Governor Boudry explained that rates have generally been falling across advanced economies. And then he used some shaky logic to justify the trend. So the four key points here are, number one, we're starting to see higher savings rates as population age um, or as populations age. So you get more and more wealth concentrated into people as they are older, they can hoard more cash. It is interesting because I think the data point, and I don't know if we mentioned this on, on the show yet, but Canadian household savings is actually in decline right now. But the central bank explained that older households will save more, implying that lower rates are needed to motivate the, them to use the cash. It's a chicken and egg situation, though, since low rates helps push the average cost of shelter from 17% of household income to 30% these days. And I think 30% would even be super conservative. Very. Um, since, yeah, since the cost of shelter is closely linked to birth rates and population growth, Perpetually falling interest rates helped drive an aging population in advanced economies. The second key point here is that China and other high savings economies joined the global economy. So China and other developing countries with higher savings rates have joined the global economy. The central bank cited the influx of global capital these households are providing has applied downward pressure on rates. Here's a fun fact. The term developing country isn't defined. It's self-declared from the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Now, under the WTO's rules, a developing country gets a special provisions for implementing agreed commitments and measures to increase trade. So they're incentivized to grow. That fact gets more fun the longer you think about it. Then you have rising inequality. So, you know, we talked about the erasure of the middle class a lot on the show. And to me, this is a big theme in seeing us heading more and more into a renter's economy. Um, you know, they explain basically that wealthier household, households tend to save more, creating further downward pressure on real rates. Reachers, researchers from the Dutch Central Bank found that low rates funnel money to the rich. So it's actually a misallocation of capital. As a result of this, and I think we've seen that, like this is really, it exacerbates that that um, erasure of the middle class, and it starts reallocating capital to people who have capital that are able to use it to compound and um, earn a return and, and hoard more and more wealth. So low rates provide leverage and inflate assets, allowing these with the most assets to capture more and more of a country's economy. The Bank of Canada also found that low rates inflated home prices furthering inequality as well. So dividing the economy a little bit into people like the haves and have nots basically where, you know, or the, you know, the rich and the poor and, and the, the, ha the, the have element is an asset. And in a lot of cases in the Canadian economy, the asset is the house. And that really seems to be the direction the economy is heading now, but it's the inequality that they're saying that's con continuing to drive these rates lower. 
Yeah, great points, Dan. And and the fourth and final point here is that there are fewer attractive investment opportunities. So the the final and major pressure point that the Bank of Canada cited was the investment puzzle or the falling productive investments. Now, it's puzzling to them why advanced economies haven't invested more in innovation despite cheaper and cheaper capital to fuel those investments. They couldn't nail down why, but they suggested a few reasons such as uh, more pro- fewer profitable ventures, sorry, decreased competition as players grow and the shift from physical to virtual asset investment. So some interesting points made by the Bank of Canada. Dan, let's let's talk about what, you know, we're, we're almost at the end here. Let's talk about what all this means. We just took an amazing ride in the DeLorean with, with Doc and, and Marty all the way back through, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way to present day, looking at average house prices, interest rate fluctuation, consumer sentiment in, the, in those um, in those periods of times as well. Let's talk about, you know, what that means for investing, why it's so important to understand rates, and probably the most important thing, why it's so important to understand cycles. And then outside of all that, how do you really find a good deal in, in all of this noise? I think, you know, it is funny because a lot of investors like don't think about this stuff at all. And and I would say actually that that makes sense. Like I, I think that's totally reasonable. I think about it because to me this is the worst case scenario. It's like and I and I, I think if you you know, when you you plan, you plan for the worst case because the best case doesn't need a plan. You know, the best case scenario is inflation's under control, it's perfect, nothing's wrong, house prices go up predictably, um, you know, Tenants all pay their rent on time. Wow, the land, the landlord and tenant board can process your uh, eviction hearing instantly. You know everything works uh, perfectly, and let's be real, like that's just not the case. And so this is why we do all this research and why we talk about all of this stuff because managing downside risk is among the most important parts. If you want to be in this game, you have to not get kicked out of the game. The the you know the goal of the game is to keep playing, right? You, you don't really win, and. Um, and I think managing downside risk, thinking about all of the things that could go wrong and then still finding an asset that you're comfortable buying in spite of all of those things and in spite of all of those risks is really how you always win in this game and how you how you make investments that make sense. Understanding what could happen with cycles and you know the impact of rates on prices and stuff like that. Um, I think it's important stuff. I mean, I hear a lot of guys on on like Twitter and wherever you know, and they're like, oh, I don't look at macro. Like, I don't care about rates and this and that. Just lever up and buy a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, all right, that's that's like totally fine. Just talk to me in a couple of years and we'll <laughs> yeah. see how you're doing. Like, and and if you're doing better than I am, then you were right and I was wrong. And we can just, we can accept that. But everybody has their own way of doing stuff. And I think this is a, a port, important, these are important considerations. Understanding that a cycle is going to happen. I mean, a lot of people got wiped out in the 90s, right? for levering up and blowing down. And I think you just got to be careful with that stuff. Um, you know, we're hearing more and more situations of distress sales. Um, you know, I, I think um, rising household indebtedness, there's a lot of risk in the market. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in the market. How do we make the best of a bad situation? That's really what it's all about. Yeah, I love that. I, I don't really have much to add to that. I just think that, you know, understanding cycles, looking at these graphs and charts, it starts to to paint a clear picture for you and not to say that 
this is going to happen again or or anything like that but the knowledge that it that it could and that if it does what are what's your position are you are you hedged against these are your deals good enough that you can withstand and white knuckle through through another one of these cycles right so i mean you know it goes back to that old saying knowledge is power which is true but all not entirely true knowledge is power but knowledge is nothing without implementation so take this knowledge and apply it to your investment strategy and i think that's a good place to leave it thanks so much for listening everybody we'll talk to you soon the canadian real estate investor podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.